Father, this morning as we gather in the name of Jesus on the basis of what he has done to redeem us, I pray that we, like newborn infants, would long for the pure spiritual milk and that by it, your word and your spirit, we may grow up into salvation. We have tasted in the gospel that you are good. We have tasted of your goodness each day as you preserve and protect and equip us for your calling. As we come to you, Lord Jesus, a living stone, we know that you were rejected by men, but you were rejected on our account. Lord, in the sight of God, you were chosen and precious. And we, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, as your holy priesthood. And as such, I pray that we would offer spiritual sacrifices, these worship songs that we have sung, the submission of our hearts to the authority of Christ, the attention of our souls to the proclamation of his word and the obedience of the saints in light of what you have given us instructions as our God and Savior, as our sovereign and Lord, and that these might be sacrifices, Lord, that are worthy and acceptable to you through Jesus Christ. Lord, this is a fruit we pray that would follow this service. We also pray if there are any in the hearing of the message today, who are not equipped to follow you and obedient, be obedient to you to walk in your ways because their heart is yet hard and dead, unchanged and caught in the transgressions. Lord, that mark us before Christ redeems us and regenerates us. We pray that the gospel would go forth to call the dead to resurrection life and that the ministry of your word would call come forth Lazarus to those who are lost without you, that they might turn from their sins, repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and join us as the royal priesthood to honor and glorify you and live in light of your truth. Open our hearts to receive your word as we open now its pages, that Christ might be glorified and his church equipped. To the praise of his great name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hallelujah. This morning, by the grace of God, we have the great privilege and opportunity of continuing to study His Word as it's delivered to us in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And we've been in this book for some time, and we're coming to the end. There's light at the end of the tunnel here. As we approach, actually today, touch upon the first half of the last chapter, chapter 50. Turn there with me, if you would. That is the end of Genesis 49 and the beginning of 50, as we behold significant moments in the life of the great patriarch Jacob and the preparations for his burial that Joseph and his brothers embark upon, upon the passing of this great man of the faith. The aim of this morning's message is to behold the glory of God in the death of the covenant son. And of course, we behold the glory of God in the death of his covenant son in Jesus Christ in fullness and fulfillment. But today, as a foreshadowing of events to come, we see particular attention paid to the death of one who is important in the legacy of God's promises to his people. We can also, in this message, take something of a lesson from the faith of Jacob. Jacob's faith in dying, stronger, I suggest, than other times in his life, joins that of his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham in believing this, that the promises of God are stronger than death. The promises of God are stronger than death. Today's message is entitled, Jacob's Faithful Death. Faithful unto the Lord, faithful to testify, dying in faith, 
Jacob's faithful death. Would you stand as you're able for the hearing of God's word? Let's consider with reverence his proclamation to us in Genesis 49, 28 through 50, verse 14. Here is the Holy Scriptures. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought uh, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that, is in, that it is in, is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed. He breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants and physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up to bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought. For, uh, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you for indulging me that little longer section of Scripture. Narrative is the genre which records the story or the biography of people of importance. And this is one of those great examples a record of the end of Jacob's life and the burial preparations, ceremony, and journey that was taken to accomplish his dying wishes. As you recall, we've been studying the life of Jacob, his sons including, and especially Joseph, for some time. We compare the two, and there are quite, there are quite, different, uh, there are quite dramatic differences between the life of Jacob and the life of Joseph. But they certainly had at least one thing in common, and that was the covenant promises of God. And that is what unites the family in this moment of sadness, sorrow, loss, and also a milestone and a turning point in the fortunes and the future of the people of God. 
Much of Jacob's life bore testimony to the grace of God in spite of his own frailties and failures. When we think of heroes in Scripture, Jacob is not usually the first to jump into people's mind. By his own accounting, you recall this, before Pharaoh, he declared in chapter 47, verse 9, you know, Jacob, in a moment of humility, maybe even self-deprecation, he says, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father in the days of their sojourning. Jacob, in total, as we look upon his life, indeed, was greatly overshadowed by his own son. Who's the greater man, Jacob or Joseph? The answer is quite easy to conclude. Joseph was far more faithful, it would appear, in both exploits and in consistency of character. Let me pause here for a prayer of application. Uh, We were praying this over our children in family worship last night. Let us pray, parents in the room, that our children may surpass us in godliness and dominion as Joseph followed Jacob. Though Joseph, excuse me, Jacob did not have a lot to boast about during the course of his life, he could certainly rest with the assurance that God was being glorified greater still through the ministry, the godliness and character of his son. What a consoling thought for a man with a troubled past dying, albeit in the covenant, as he passed on. And how could it ever be a bad thing that our children would do more for the kingdom of God than we would? No matter how much grace God has given us to be faithful to him, let us pray that the next generation would be more faithful still. May our children surpass us in godliness and dominion as Joseph followed Jacob. Nevertheless, let me hasten to add, in the context of our passage today, there is a most remarkable exception to the story, the life of Jacob, that is evident at his deathbed. Here, where the test of faith was the greatest, he's about to die, and Jacob is physically the weakest, his last breath and words are recorded. Nevertheless, his faith shines the brightest. When the test is greatest, death's door. When Jacob is the weakest, almost gone, his faith shines the brightest. Jacob's choice of burial location acknowledged God's future plans, his intentions for the covenant family. That is, they would return to the promised land. They also recognized uh, in faith implicitly that there was resurrection. There was hope beyond the grave. This faith is testified to in Hebrews eleven twenty one, where Jacob is listed in the hall of faith with others, saying this, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. What a picture of faithfulness in dying. Jacob's dedication to the covenant, I submit, was never stronger than on this, his dying day as evidenced even by his burial plans and this moment in the record. Here's a heading for you. The enduring message of three things. What is the message of Jacob's death? Let us consider the message of his burial wishes, 49, 28 through 33. The burial procession, 51 through 9. By the way, what is procession? That's a long uh, train or chain or almost like a parade. So I don't know if you've been to a funeral, uh, young people, maybe you got into your car and drove to the cemetery in a funeral procession 
And usually what happens is there's a long line of cars that moves respectfully and slowly, oftentimes escorted in the front and the back by perhaps like a uh, police car or a fire engine. And then it arrives. It's part of the ceremony of the proceedings to honor someone in death, a procession. Of course, a procession happens at a wedding as well. When um, the bride, the, uh, the groom's usually standing there, the bride, the bridesmaids and so forth, they all file down the center aisle. That's called a procession. There is a great procession at Jacob's burial, <clears throat> 51 through nine. And then finally, let us consider the message of Jacob's burial testimony. What was the testimony, the truth that these events in Jacob's own confession held, held forth, proclaimed during this hour? Burial wishes, procession, burial testimony. First of all, Jacob's burial wishes. He uh, says the following to his sons as he is about to give up the ghost. In 29, he commanded them and said to them, 49, chapter 49, I am about to be gathered to my people. And he's asking, this, there's a destination in view. There's one more journey he will take after he dies. The most important journey of his life, one might say. I'm to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. You can turn to chapter 23, where we see background for this occasion. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And then he breathed his last after commanding his sons, droop his feet into the bed. He died. He was gathered to his people. Jacob's burial wish included a destination. Bring my body, bring these bones, bring this corpse after I am gone back to the field uh, that we purchased, Abraham, my grandfather did, from Ephron the Hittite. There you'll find five remain, remains of five others who were buried, me, buried there, lay me beside them. We live in a culture that has a poor relationship with death, if you will. And it's hard when you think of that, it sounds strange. A relationship with death, what exactly do you mean? Well, think about it. I, one of my favorite quotes, I know I've quoted it before, but I love to take every opportunity or uh, another opportunity to say it. This is, uh, um, surely there are none so mad as those who are content to live unprepared to die. One of my favorite quotes, surely there are, they are, none, there are none so mad as those who are content to live unprepared prepared to die. What that quote recognizes is that only a fool would avoid the reality that life has a destination point, a shelf life, an end point, and everyone must come to terms with their own death at some point. This is the most important moment of accounting and reckoning. At death, obviously so, there's no more opportunity to make amends. There's no other opportunity to confess one's wrongs, and to set things right, to repent or to turn. Everything of significance that happens with the soul and its decisions as far as this life is concerned happens before that moment. At death, there is a shutting of the door of the possibility of repentance. And at that point, we stand before God, either righteous, justified in the blood of his son, or guilty and condemned to hell eternal, because the final moment of our opportunity to cry out to God for repentance and faith has closed. 
What an incredible moment. Do you know when that is? No, no man knows the day or the hour. No one knows when we will die. Yet we live in a day and an age and a culture among a people who seeks to put off the inevitable, largely by distraction and denial. In America, we have a poor relationship with death. We, as we grow older, seek to make ourselves younger. Through deception and just uh, deceiving ourselves, we seek to pretend that death is not soon arriving. And perhaps when we look in the mirror and the uh, evidence of Botox is less wrinkles, it will allow us the delusion that we're younger than we really are. And if we can afford all kinds of medical procedures and all kinds of, you know, uh, lifestyle changes and so forth or move to a different place that allows us to be amused and allows us to be distracted, then we can put off the inevitable. We have a lot of money to spend on the fallacy, on the delusion, on the vain ambition of pretending to be younger than we are and avoiding the inevitable one day. This was not Jacob's testimony. One thing that the harsh conditions of other societies at least taught them was you better be prepared to die. And that is a significant moment. And only a fool believes that he can pay enough money uh, to avoid it. Jacob knew otherwise. And he had a destination in mind in his death. In death, Jacob took his most important journey, I would argue. What is your destination in death? Well, if you are in Christ, your destination is heaven. If you do not know Christ, your destination in death is to join all of the rebels to be justly punished forever for your blatant violation and your rebellion against a holy God. Funerals are a great opportunity to share the faith and the faithfulness of Christ in his redemption. And when we point to one who trusted Christ in to one who trusted Christ in dying, it is a great reminder of these perspective points. It can help us to restore our relationship with the inevitable end of this life and then the transition to the next, what death is. Jacob's uh, uh, intentions and wishes in his burial speak to his faith. What was his testimony in death? His testimony in death is that the promises of the covenant are where I, what I want to be remembered for and where I place my hope and therefore bring me home. If we go by, uh, to Hebrews chapter 11, I guess before we go to Genesis 23, I'm reminded of the faithfulness in death that marked the saints of old. Jacob is listed among them. Notice a few other examples, however. We read, I believe, verse, oh, here's one, verse 13, Abraham. All these died in faith not having received the things promised, Abraham and others who shared his faith, but having seen them from and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who seek thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Jacob sought a homeland. He knew that the promises of God had their place and location in Canaan. And therefore, even though he was dead in faith, he wanted his bones moved there. He had faith that one day God had intentions, even for his own body, that he might raise, be raised from the dead. And he staked his claim and assurance for his destination in the next life on these promises. And goes further, other examples, 19. He considered, that is Abraham, that God was able even to raise from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What gave Abraham, that is, faith to obey God and offering his son Isaac on the altar of obedience. Even though God did not require Abraham to take his life, he knew that God's word would not be broken, 
that God would raise him from the dead, if that was what was required for his promises to be true. Remember, promises stronger than death. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his own bones. By faith, Moses, another example, when he was born, uh, we'll talk more about that later, was hidden for three months by his parents. They saw the child was beautiful. It goes on. Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau, verse 20. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Uh, here we see in Hebrews 11 that one's relationship to death is a mark of their faith. Do they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that in Christ they have a destination beyond the grave to be joined because of the blood that Christ shed for them in reunion with the Lord? In a cemetery in Emily, of course not far from here, there are several generations of Carltons my family buried. So you can go to this little burial plot area and our, my great-great-grandparents are there and next to them my great-grandparents and then my grandparents and other relatives are in there as well. My Uncle Stanley uh, is there. And um, here's an application for you as well. Uh, one, sometimes, from time to time, I bring my family to, I never did this much in the past, but in recent years and the conviction of passages like this, it strikes me as a good thing to do. You might do the same. Perhaps you visit the grave of a loved one, especially uh, a loved one who was in Christ. And as you visit that grave, you might read a passage like this and you might tell your ch ask your children, do you know what's stronger than death? The promises of God. This is just a temporary resting place, but our there is a destination for our bones beyond death if we know Jesus Christ. There will come a day, a trumpet will sound, a great moment of miraculous reconstitution and resurrection. And on that day, everyone in Christ will rise from that grave and join him in glory forever. This is just a temporary place for our bones. Jacob had faith that God's promises were stronger than death, and he wanted to be buried in such a way as to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, so to speak, even over the last enemy, the grave. So this destination is significant. Of course, this touches upon the family history. Jacob references this, and if we go back to Genesis 23, we see what situation, or here's recorded the situation he's talking about. Sarah, 23.1, lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. Abraham rose up, verse 3, before his dead, and said to the Hittites, so remember, Abraham was a sojourner and a foreigner, even as he says in verse 4. But now he's asking for a piece of property. God had promised him all of Canaan, but as at this point, he owned exactly zero. He was passing through. He was a traveler, a sojourner, nomad, a foreigner. He had no claim officially, a deed in hand to property. But upon the death of his beloved bride, he is asking for this. So he goes to the Hittites, he says, verse 4, Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. Goes on to give a record of a covenant. They come to terms, the negotiations are complete, a sum of money is given in exchange, not for the choicest of tombs, not for the charity of those that dwell among them, but no, there is a legitimate claim and a deed in hand and money exchanged. And the first down payment on the property of Canaan becomes the ownership stake that Abraham has in God's future promises here. This uh, foothold in Canaan becomes very significant. It is a 
a down payment, if you will, on God's promises that Abraham and his family will one day own the entire place. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which is east of Mamre, the field and the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field, throughout this whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried his beloved Sarah in that cave. <clears throat> this testimony continues now through three generations. Others have been buried there. Isaac <clears throat> and Rebekah are buried there. Leah is buried there. And very soon, Jacob will be as well. Because he understood the stake and the claim and his family's history connected to this place. Jacob understood in death, perhaps more clearly than any other time in his life, that he as a patriarch was an anointed servant of the Lord. He served in part as a priest and in part as a prophet to steward and to be an archivist, if you will. That is to be a historian of the word of God, to preserve the message that God had told him and also the message that had come to him down through the generations, the promises of God, the purposes that he had for him and his family. Recall the circumstances leading up to this purchase of the piece of property. Death occasioned the first claim to the land. And as this uh, treaty was arrived at, if you will, or this covenant was made, Abraham received a cemetery, a place to bury his wife. This cemetery was Abraham's down payment on future promises, the only property for a long time in the possession of the people of God for years and years. Later in Jacob's own life, he would buy an additional piece of property in Shechem. And we see that becomes significant as well as Joseph is buried there in Joshua 24, 32. We add thus to this family history, the family legacy. In this family legacy, Jacob honoring the legacy of his forefathers and more importantly, believing God's word unto them seeks to be laid to rest with Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah. And centuries later, some 400 years, Joseph had given instructions and the people obey. They follow his own burial instructions. Hebrews 11 referenced that as well. And so Joseph, did you know he went through the Red Sea as well? But he did so in the form of remains. His coffin, so to speak, was carried with the Exodus generation. Moses and all his people, as they crossed the Red Sea unto Canaan land, they had very precious cargo with them. And among that cargo was the bones of Joseph. And where did they bury him? They buried him in the second place in Shechem that the people of God owned, the down payment purchased to the land a similar testimony of God's purposes and an honoring of this family history and family legacy. And this history and legacy ultimately was an honoring of the word of God. And it was a testimony and a witness to their faith as the scriptures record. Thus, we see in these details the enduring message of Jacob's burial wishes. It spoke to a destination, a history, and a legacy of God's promises, once again, stronger than death. Second point this morning we consider the enduring message of Jacob's burial procession. What about this long chain of people and equipment, in fact, that followed him? Interesting. Chapter 50 in Genesis, Genesis again, verse 1, we see that this procession, before they left for the journey, there were quite a few preparations that were made. After Joseph had fallen on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him, he gave a command of course, we remember who Joseph is. He's second in command of all of Egypt. The embalmers and those who carefully prepare a body for burial 
and this high-tech, sophisticated way, especially for the time, that was so incredible that today mummies are preserved from probably around this time all through the ages is quite the ordeal and quite the steps that were taken to honor the body and burial. So Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm, that is to preserve in death, of course, the remains of his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel, another name for Jacob. How long did it take? Forty days were required for it. That is how many are required for embalming. And listen, the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. This is a moment that we can pause upon and realize the significance. Jacob's burial procession and the care that was taken in preserving his body and the reaction, the response of the people were talking, you know, months of crying and weeping, the pausing of ordinary life to acknowledge the significance of this moment. This is really something. Jacob as unremarkable as he considered himself to be when he stood before Pharaoh, confessing, few and evil have been my days, a different reaction entirely happens at his passing from all the people around. What could account for this? Well, certainly this was a rich man's funeral that was being prepared. Note how elaborate these preparations are, how extensive the ceremonies and I hasten to add, this foreshadows a covenant son to come. You look at the parallels in life and death between Jacob and Jesus. And at this moment, they're particularly striking. Jesus, all his life, what did he say? The son of man has no place to lay his head. And if you think of his former habitation, exalted at the right hand of the father, leaving behind that glory that he had and taking the veil of flesh in the incarnation and then not even having a permanent residence during the course of his ministry. This, a for all intents and purposes, homeless man was great. Yet it took the eyes of faith to recognize and to, to see what God was doing in this. Jacob, similar. He was far from home. He was in a distant land. Canaan was his, but he just owned a small piece of property. He died as a foreigner in a place where it was culturally foreign to him, where he didn't know the language, presumably, and was far from his familiar surroundings, the tradition and legacy of his family. Yet, even in his death, his significance is noted. The people recognize this man was important. They paused their ordinary life. They took great care to recognize what is going on. And this foretells of another situation to come. Jesus himself received a rich man's burial. This was prophesied. It was pictured prophetically here, I submit to you, in the burial of Jacob. But in Isaiah 53, more explicitly, we see the prophet declaring, and they made, verse 9, his grave, speaking of Jesus, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So a picture of God's purposes through his covenant son is in spite of a superficial humility or an apparent a lowliness that accompanied him. Nevertheless, in his death, he would be exalted. I love R.C. Sproul's ministry and there's those moments when R.C. would make a point. You'd see the twinkle in his eye and you could tell he was about to tell you something he was very fond of saying. And one of those moments I always remember involves the death of Jesus. And in commenting on the states of Jesus, if you will, where his state 
uh, his former state of pre-incarnate glory and then his humiliation. And then as Philippians 2 prophesies or declares, there is the exaltation. So you think former glory, humiliation, exaltation. And with a twinkle in his eye and that knowing look of the treasures of the word of God buried within the man's soul, R.C. would say, where do you suppose the exaltation of Jesus began? Well, when he would rose from the dead, we might answer, he said, and then he would look and say no sooner than this. The exaltation of Jesus Christ began in his burial. It was evening, Matthew 27, 57, and there came a rich man from Arimathea. What was his name? Joseph. Here we have Joseph, a rich man, burying with an honorable, in an honorable grave a person he recognizes as entirely significant. He was a believer this Joseph of Arimathea. He went to Pilate. He asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, notice the parallels, and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. They had cut in the rock and he rolled a great stone in the entrance of the tomb and went away. And of course, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. And we know what happens next. God's intentions for the body of Jesus are soon apparent in three days when he rises from the grave. But in a place I imagine not far from the cave in Machpelah, there was another tomb where a man was given, a humble man, apparently, was given a rich man's burial as a signal, as a symbol of future glory. And of course, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, no more was he seen in the same light anymore, but now, and the glories that he once had, he would soon ascend, return to be honored and to be glorified and magnified and receive his rightful position at the right hand of the Father forevermore. The message of Jacob's burial procession proclaimed future glories in death through the covenant son. I suggest to you, even in the fact that he received this rich man's funeral. We go back to our text today and we recognize in the attitude of Egypt to the occasion of this man's death, there is providential favor that it has visited the land. The people wept for him 70 days. When the days of weeping were past, they made preparations. Jacob goes, Joseph, excuse me, goes before Pharaoh. May I please accompany my father or bring my father accompanied with my family to place him in the cave in Machpelah? Absolutely, Pharaoh answers and gives him everything he needs for the journey, including an entourage to honor this moment of all the servants of Pharaoh, all the elders of the land, chariots, horsemen, a very great company, a great burial procession, perhaps the greatest in all of history. This is incredible. This elaborate preparations and all that follows was a providential spoke of the providential favor even to this foreign land. God had prophesied to Abraham that he would be a light to the nations and a blessing to them. And through Jacob's testimony in dying, he was a light and blessing to Egypt. Pharaoh and all his uh, officers who served alongside him and all the people who joined in mourning for 70 days had seen a light of significance. I imagine many of them were probably true believers they had turned from their false gods and they recognized that this man was a prophet who lived among them. And they recognized this in large part because his son Joseph, who feared Yahweh, the one true God, had preserved them through seven years of famine, unto seven years of through seven years of plenty, and then through seven years of famine with enough overflow to feed the known world at the time. 
If Jacob had died in Canaan, if he had not traveled to Egypt, his passing would have likely been entirely unnoticed in this pagan land, in this foreign country. More purposes of the famine relocation to Egypt are seen and become clear as the events of history unfold. The text in this example is building towards that great legacy of Joseph and all of Genesis. And we'll see this, Lord willing, next sermon in this passage, where Joseph basically says, he proclaims that what, that God, what you meant for evil, God used for good, and thus proclaiming that a personal and powerful God works all things for good. Even escape to a foreign pagan land, even a patriarch in his dying day, even Joseph, who was sold into slavery and falsely accused and imprisoned, God, the personal and powerful sovereign over all human events, all history and all the universe, works all things for good. And one of the things he was working for good in these moments is that a witness through Jacob's burial procession, the proceedings of this funeral, was preaching the truth of covenant significance and a covenant son and purpose beyond the grave and a hope stronger than death to a foreign land. And as this procession continued, this rich man's funeral, this greatest of processions perhaps farther and more people attending than any other in all of history, at least as I imagine, where are they going? Well, in the words of the prophet later in our worship text today, they are streaming up to Zion. Again, a prophetic picture of things to come. This great funeral procession includes within it untold numbers of Egyptians, important people that are accompanying Joseph, his brothers, and the bones of Jacob on the way. Think of the great juxtaposition of this moment with a Pharaoh who would arise and not know Joseph some 400 years later. Who is accompanying Joseph, <coughs> the dignitary of Egypt, to bury his father? Well, as we said, the elders and the dignitaries, but also chariots and horsemen, officials, a great company of mourners, traveling to a humble cave in a wilderness field where five nomads are buried. This is an event that would foreshadow events to come. The Queen of Sheba seeking to see if what she heard was true of the wisdom of Solomon. What is this place in Zion where God has set up an important memorial and moment that even the foreign nations should take notice? Or you think, of course, of the wise men traveling from the east by a star. And when they come, they didn't find a king in royal robes, but a toddler more than likely in a humble dwelling. Yet they knew through the eyes of faith that their journey was worth it and that the one whom they visited was worthy of their worship. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were offered to him. What is this? These are the nations streaming up to Zion because they recognize that the promises of the covenant hold out hope in God's power over even the grave. And of course, one day, not just at his birth, but later through his gospel, people would continue to stream up to Zion. And if you are, are a believer spiritually, you have taken this journey. Spiritually, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you have recognized the testimony of all the saints, the word of God, Jacob, who's gone before and you have streamed up, you have joined in acknowledging the significance of the ancients who said, we will accompany this man to this place because something important is going on here. In the death of the covenant son is something worth marking with this, this great ceremony and this great attention. And so the death of the covenant son, Jesus Christ, 
is worthy of all the attention a sinner could possibly muster because in that death is held out hope for your eternal future. And the destiny of your bones changes when you remark upon the reason, behold and believe the reason for which Jesus Christ died. He died to seal the covenant that was promised to these saints of old. And when he died, he purchased for himself a people who will go beyond the grave to live with him forever. And so when our bones are laid to rest alongside Jacob, if you will, they await that great day when all who have received his promise will arise to worship him and stream to Zion once and for all with all the saints where the law of God is proclaimed and established perfectly in his kingdom. He died to purchase forever and without end. This is the enduring message of Jacob's burial procession fulfilled in Christ and proclaiming to us hope. Thirdly and finally, Jacob's burial testimony. His wishes, his procession, and then his testimony. There was a message that was going forth to his sons at this time, <coughs> and an important one at that. Uh, last week, um, sometimes the kids want screen time all the time. They want screen time, it seems like. And so sometimes it'd be like, all right, we can watch something, but it's got to be educational. So the other day we chose a little documentary on an interesting um, area in China. As far as we know, the world's largest necropolis, uh, fancy word, you know what that means? It means like burial complex, uh, opolis meaning like city and, and necro referring to deaths, necropolis. 38 square miles, so I got fun facts for you that I'll soon forget, but refresh my mind due to this uh, you know, documentary. 38 square mile necropolis, the first, what they call the first emperor of China. And you know this story because you've heard of this, I'm sure, terracotta army. Does that ring a bell? Clay soldiers, life size, five and a half to six and a half feet. Guess how many are buried in this necropolis, they figure? About 8,000. That was in your mind, you are correct. 6,000 have been excavated, and you can go there. There's like a museum with a, a, you know, a covering over this entire area. What, what I learned is that is some army, that is like a fake army, obviously, but like five miles distant from the place of burial, symbolically guarding maybe the right flank of the dead guy in the tomb that has not, as far as we know, ever been excavated under a pyramid that's basically like a small mountain. And then over way on this other side, there's something else, and way over here, miles away, there's something else. Here's a mass grave of the 750,000 workers they figure worked on this place their entire lives, lived and died at this location. Why do I bring this up? Because this is the kind of thing the ancients would ordinarily place their faith and hope in. People would die, and based upon the wealth that they had, they would try to secure hope for the afterlife by means of what they could accomplish in their burial rituals and so forth. Was, did Jacob have any lack of resources to join the pressure of culture and securing the best possible future, you know, beyond the grave with what was at his disposal. The uh, traditions of the time, you know, the practices of Egypt and the money that he no doubt could have through Joseph, his son, second in command of all the kingdom. That is to say, if Jacob wanted it, he could be buried probably in a pyramid reaching up to the skies alongside the river Nile and, and maybe that pyramid would exist even to this day. And you could see the testimony of one of the ancients who wanted to be remembered beyond the grave by means of commanding a slave army to work on his necropolis. Is this what Jacob wished for? Is this what he wanted in dying? Nothing of the kind. 
Although the culture of the time honored him with the rich man's burial, what was Jacob's request? That he would be buried in a humble cave in the field purchased from Ephron the Hittite next to five others who, in his family who had died before him. This was a testimony to his sons, was it not? Though Jacob could have had the riches of Egypt and a burial that would have been impressive in the culture that he lived, and a testimony to them on their own terms that they would find impressive, Jacob rather sought to be counted with the children of God and retain his connection to the promises of God in his homeland and ask that he be relocated to this humble place as a testimony to his sons and to his family that the covenant promises of God are not only stronger than death, but they're more valuable than what this pagan culture can offer. The promises of God are not only more stronger than death, but they're more valuable than the riches that this culture can offer. That the fame, notoriety, that the comfort, that the joys, that the, that the wealth and the, and the uh, lifestyle that our society today can offer. Better to be buried in a, in a poor cave and God's promises than to enjoy all the pleasures of Egypt and die and go to hell. This is the message of Jacob's burial testimony. And why do we have these words in Genesis 49 recorded for us? Of Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, Benjamin, and so forth that we have spent some time studying? Well, we have them because his children took them seriously, remembered them, passed them on to the next generation, and presumably eventually recorded by Moses himself. The words of Jacob's dying song, blessing his family, were written indelibly on the souls of his sons in part because of his testimony in burial that Jesus Christ and the future and the covenant that held forth the promise of a Messiah is where hope relies, where hope resides in life and in death. This testimony, not just to his sons, however, this testimony was evident to the Canaanites as this burial procession goes forth into Canaan, verse 10, they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. He made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land of Canaan saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, which means mourning of the Egyptians. It is beyond the Jordan. A witness to the significance of Jacob is recognized by the local inhabitants, so much so that they forever changed the name of the place, at least in the indefinite future, where this great funeral happened among them. This is a witness and a testimony to them. Such an impression on the natives was named that they renamed this place the a mourning of the Egyptians to commemorate this moment. Now, this would later serve as a witness against them. The Canaanites had also recognized, we remember um, in Genesis 23, that Abraham was not just an ordinary person, but he was a prince of God among them. So therefore, they honored him and came to covenant terms with him in that exchange for a place to bury his bride. Uh, likewise, that, that land holding that Jacob had in Shechem would also be a testimony. In other words, the Canaanites had recognized that these were important men, uh, blessed with the favor of God, that dwelt among them. And to the degree that they honored them and were in covenant, peaceable covenant with them, they would be blessed. 
and to the degree that they made war with them, it spelled trouble for them. They named this region for the burial ceremony of Jacob, whose body was laid to rest in their land. The Canaanites had the great privilege of being the host land of a great man called by God to witness and testify to the only way mankind can be saved through his son one day, who would be Jesus Christ. They had witness enough to welcome with open arms centuries later his family as they returned to the promised land. But did they? No, they did not. Notice the difference between that journey. All the chariots of Pharaoh accompanied were an escort to protect them on the way when they came. The people of the land acknowledged the moment and honored Jacob by renaming the place for his funeral. This testimony on the Canaanites would one day stand against them and history would judge them guilty of the judgments of God because when they go back to the land centuries later, they're not greeted with welcome and open arms. The prince of God among us has returned. His lineage has returned. No, they violently oppose God's people and thus are rooted out, eventually root and branch and judged harshly, justly, and accordingly because Israel's return to the promised land was not recognized as God's sovereign, move, uh, God's sovereign purposes among them, though the Canaanites had no excuse. They had this testimony among them. Likewise, the Egyptians. So this testimony went forth to Jacob's sons, the Canaanites, and the Egyptians. The nations were beholding the glory of God in these events. The father of Joseph, the Egyptians recognized. Joseph, their great leader, who spared them, saved their lives through famine. His father had died. This witness of divine providence and the fear of the Lord among them arrested the attention of the entire nation. So to a man and to a dignitary, they accompanied him back to his place of burial. The culture was compelled to willingly bow before the favor of the one true God. And centuries later, again, without excuse, they would be broken by his acts of judgment under Moses. Why? Because Moses would ask a similar question that Jacob asked of Pharaoh. Remember, Jacob goes to Pharaoh. He says, let me please go up to bury my father, then I will return. In Exodus 5, we'll find a similar question by the anointed man of God at the time. May I please leave for three days to worship our God in the wilderness? This Pharaoh who did not, net, did not know Joseph said, no way. I am not letting his, your people go. In fact, I will double their labor or whatever he did. I will multiply their labor in his tyrannical response to uh, Moses' humble question. In that question, this dignitary had the opportunity to recognize a prophet of God among him. He was without excuse. He did not. When it says he did not know Joseph, it wasn't as if he was unaware of this testimony that preceded him. We know the Egyptians kept great and precise records of everything that happened in their history. No, he refused to acknowledge the testimony of God among them. He, like Romans 1 says, had no excuse. Refusing to grant Moses' request for three days of worship in the wilderness, <clears throat> he testified against himself of his own guilt, and soon the judgments of God would rain down upon him. What should he have done? He should have followed the example of the king, the pharaoh before him, and given him a great entourage of chariots and horses to guard him on the way. 
He should have instructed his leaders and the kings and say to go with Moses, go learn from him, follow him all the way to the promised land. Make sure their passage is safe. Recognize a prince of God among us. If he had done so, he would not have lost his firstborn son. And with that loss, his own legacy and lineage and future family to rule this great empire. What we see here is the inevitable difference in fortunes between one who bows to the Lord and submits to his will and one whose heart is hard and stands against him. The scriptures tell even kings, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. The Pharaoh of old during Jacob's time kissed the son and the Lord blessed and multiplied his blessings in a nation. The Pharaoh in Moses' day did not kiss the son and the Lord demonstrated his anger against him. These pharaohs are all but lost to history. The only, thing we, the only reason we know anything about them is because it's written down in these words here. But they are a cautionary tale, especially the second, as we've mentioned. But as we read and proclaim today, the legacy and the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is being proclaimed in this sermon in pulpits around the world and in the Word of God until the Lord returns. Why? Because the enduring message of the gospel proclaimed and lived through the faithful saints of old and their burial wishes in the case of Jacob, his procession, and his testimony. Praise the Lord that we can join him, so to speak, in his faith by trusting and believing that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and in him, in the gospel, we too have the promise of life beyond the grave. Let us close and transition in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of truth from your holy word that speaks to us the knowledge of the saints of old, Lord, in, that they had in faith and prophecy of a hope to come. Lord, what they had in shadow, we have in substance. What they have in type, we have in fulfillment. What they have in ceremony, we have in the record of the gospel. Lord, I pray that the knowledge of this perspective would encourage the faith of the saints today that we may stand and be a light in a wicked culture and proclaim to the lost but one way, truth and life, for hope stronger than the grave. And all this, that your kingdom may advance, that kings and poor alike would bow before your authority and stream up with us to Zion, that they would join us in that destination of praise before your throne one day as you bring all your saints home to the ultimate promised land, a new heavens, new earth, to the praise of your name forever. Thank you for these promises and assurances. May we not forget them, but instead apply and live in light of them. In Jesus' name, amen.